Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Geary. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Missouri, and he is an expert in mathematical cognition as well as human sex differences. David, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Great, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. So yeah, uh, sex differences and numerical cognition, those sound like two very different lines of research. So which one did you get involved in first? Yeah, good good question. Um, in, in graduate school, I was actually interested in sex differences and um, uh, hormonal changes at puberty as related to processing visual, spatial, and um, uh, language-related information on the left and the right hemisphere. It's kind of a complicated thing. Um, I was going to do my dissertation on that, but um, had some technical issues that you know, it kind of fell through. Mm -hmm. And so at, at the same time, I was, so my, it, my initial interest was, was sex differences in cognition. Um, and since the, the dissertation fell through, I've been working with another professor on uh, math cognition, which I, I liked. Uh, and so I just did my dissertation on that and kind of con continued uh, with the math cognition for a long time and then picked up with the sex differences later on. Mm -hmm. So this was mathematical cognition more generally and not like sex differences within math, math ability or anything. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, we were interested in uh, developmental growth just you know, across kids, especially lower achieving kids. And um, yeah, we looked at a few sex differences, but it, but it wasn't our, our focus. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then how did your research uh, shift over time after? So that, that was during grad school and then after grad school, mm -hmm. what happened? Yeah, so um, after grad school, I stuck with the um, numerical <clears throat> mathematical cognition work that in my area was pretty safe. Um, I was interested in evolution and sex differences at the time. Um, there was no evolutionary psychology at that point. And I knew it was controversial. So I decided, well, I'm just gonna stick with this kind of typical cognitive development work until I get tenured. And then once I get tenured, I can start doing evolutionary theory and um, sex differences, sexual selection and that. So I, I kind of, during the time I did numerical cognition work, I was doing a lot of reading mm -hmm. um, to prepare for my my new career once I was tenured. Right. So, so ev evolutionary psychology wasn't really much of a thing back then. So you were doing research or reading mostly on evolutionary biology. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, thankfully the, uh, anthropology department at Missouri had a number of um, evolutionarily informed folks and, and people working in that area. So I met up with them and, um, was able to get readings and, stuff and then just found a lot of material on my own yeah but mm -hmm. but a lot of it was just classical mm -hmm. so researchers on research on sex differences can be controversial which i'm, I'm hoping we'll, we'll get to talking about that and maybe dispelling any misconceptions but beforehand sure. why was evolutionary psychology more generally controversial well i think it <clears throat> I, I don't know if it's people in general or people who go into psychology. Um, there is kind of a, a deep down hope that 
we can change things that we think might need to be changed. And, and certainly there are cases where, where things can in fact be changed and improved, um, but there, there are limits on that. There's some things that can be pushed a little bit here and there, some things that we pushed a lot here and there, and other things that just aren't gonna change much, no matter how much you want them uh, to change. And I think the resistance was that, well, you know, if everything is kind of evolved, uh, then there's no reason to have psychology. It's like, well, everything's already predetermined stuff. That, that was a misunderstanding of, of evolution, even though there's a heritable component to it. Um, there, there's almost always some variation or plasticity uh, in it. So I, I think initially it was like, you know, we want to be able to change the world, but we don't want to hear these constraints. And they overestimated the extent of the constraints in many cases. Yeah, I've learned a lot through this podcast about the how how both nature and nurture are both both your biological components and your social environment and culture and so on have influenced behavior, but, mm -hmm. but it seems like they work in tandem more than against each other. Right. Yeah. 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 So um that 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 reminds me with with your work on numerical cognition, is that related to intelligence at all? Because that's sort of another one of these controversial topics where it's like people don't might not like the idea that some people are born mm -hmm. smarter and that's kind of, well, that's not fair. Right, yeah, yeah, it's not fair. And you know, with evolution, it's never gonna be about fair. It's about what's functional, what works. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the numerical co cognition work, I, I've actually put in an evolutionary context and said that you know there's there's certain uh, mathematical abilities, um, you know, counting, arithmetic, algebra, and so forth, that are pretty historically recent, and mm -hmm. they're especially recent if you s assume that you know we're going to educate everybody in these domains, which mm -hmm. is a tough task. So I, I've said, well, you know, th these are biologically secondary tasks. These are tasks that are built from more primary or core built-in evolved systems. Um, mm. And so necessarily schooling and interventions are gonna be absolutely required for the development of secondary abilities. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there it is a, a, a clear nurture component by evolutionary definition. Otherwise they wouldn't emerge. I mean, nobody's gonna learn algebra without um, without some formal instruction. Right. Uh, <clears throat> but then the, the issue of um, uh, things like intelligence, working memory, main general cognitive abilities come in because the rate with which you can acquire secondary abilities, how quickly you understand number concepts, fractions, arithmetic, you know, um, you know mm -hmm. exponents, or whatever it might be, is related to intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I've argued, is kind of an evolved system to deal with variation, change, or novelty. So we have these systems that allow us to deal with new things and figure out how new things work. Uh, and much of education is new things. And so mm -hmm. that system for dealing with which includes intelligence, will um, predict rate of learning in school. Which isn't fair, but um, you know that's just the way it is. That's been repeatedly shown, you know, for uh -huh. decades. 
So the primary trait that that mathematical ability and other things can emerge from, is it all just working memory or are there other necessary components that eventually lead to being able to 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 do math? Right. There 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 is a built in kind of biologically primary evolved system for estimating relative quantity. So you got a group of five things over here and you know that that's less than a group of 10 things just by looking at it without having to count or assign numerals to it. So there, there is this approximate number system. is adapted or influences biologically secondary learning is actually unclear. There, there's a lot of debate going on about that right now. I, I think it's kind of important early on, but then um, the secondary system kind of uh, takes on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. Would it be right to conceptualize something as a secondary system if it's something that is malleable across different cultures? So for example, you could imagine that we might all have the same brains and be able to do the same things, but then our version of math could be very different from another culture's version of math. Yeah, well, it, it, it depends. So if you look at language, you know, there's arguments about that, of course, as well. But I, I, I think uh, it's, it's pretty clearly there's an evolved bias and evolved brain and cognitive systems that enable us to learn language. So the basic underlying structure of it is there. But the surface structure, you know, whether you speak French or German or English or whatever it might be, um, can vary across cultures. Uh, there are other things that are built in like your just tendency to understand, you know, the, the plants and animals in your partic particular context you're living in. And in traditional contexts, that knowledge is extensive in both boys, girls, men, and women. You'd have to learn a lot about your ecology in order to uh, survive. In um, kind of Western cultures where kids aren't having that many experiences, they still have the rudimentary features of this folk biology, but it's not very extensively developed. Developed, So the basics are there, but the extent of the knowledge base varies quite a bit across cultures. Mm -hmm. And so when, when we have our normal sense of categorization, so for example, children will learn the different names of animals or even maybe different types of cars or vehicles, stuff like that. Do you think that's an extension mm -hmm. of the same system? Right. Yeah. So, so people will categorize lots of things. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're very good price groups, categorize people, cars, uh, animate things, inanimate things, and so forth. Um, the, yeah, yeah. The quick, quick question is, is the ability to categorize man-made things developed from the same system that allows us to categorize plants animal? question yeah exactly yeah um I probably it's it's related um if you look at um brain injury studies you can have specific injuries and in, you know one area of the brain that take out the ability to categorize man-made things but plants and animals are okay and vice versa and they're adjacent to one another and, and so probably it is kind of an elaboration of that kind of categorization of things in your environment um, tendency that, that people have. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So once you got tenure, you were able to apply this more evolutionary focus to not only your research on 
numerical cognition, but then also you began exploring sex differences? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I was interested in um, sex differences going back to graduate school mm -hmm. and um, kept up that difference. And, and so uh, that, that interest in, and so had been reading a lot in the kind of basic biological literature. Um, and then a few years after tenure, on uh, sex differences from, from a biological basis um, called male-female. So that, that came out in 93, 98. And then the, the third edition just came out last fall. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing this type of research, is there a way to reliably um, disentangle which sex differences might be directly biological and which ones might have to do with like social environment or certain certain maybe gender norms or something like that? Right. Yeah, that that's that's a good question and uh you know kind of key controversy here. There in in many among many social scientists, there is a default assumption that differences between um you know boys and girls or people in different cultures or whatever um are due to socialization. Um in of what others think they should do. So the default is there is kind of, yeah, everything's socialized, which is a, you know, a bad default. Uh, the real default should be, we don't know. And so we need, need to look at it. So the, the way I look at it is I look at things that are um, common across species. So things like um, rough and tumble play is very common in mammals. And it's typically found in the sex that has more aggressive interactions in adulthood, typically males, but, but sometimes um, females. And, and, and so you have a cross um, species continuity. Okay, th this is a behavior we know is found in a lot of species, and we know that it's related to certain things in adulthood. Intensity of competition for mates, for example, male-male competition. And then we can look and see, okay, if that's the case, then, um, uh, and if we see it in people, uh, we should expect more boys than girls to engage in rough and tumble play. We should also see that uh, males are more aggressive with one another for status related sorts of things than are females. And there's huge amounts of evidence for that from the anthropological literature, population genetic literature, so forth. The fact that males are bigger than females is a very good um, indication of that. So we, we can say, I, I think you can say with, with uh, certainty that rough and tumble play, the sex difference there is in part related to an evolutionary history of male-male competition. So that's the ultimate sort of thing. You, you can look at proximate factors. So you can look at kids for a variety of genetic or health reasons have had um, differences in their prenatal and early postnatal hormonal environment. So you have kind of natural experiments there and look at the frequency, whether that changes their behavior downstream. And it does a bit. Um, and you can also look at the intensity of things, whether parents kind of try to tamp it down or whether they exaggerate it across cultures. And whether those parental influences vary with kind of um, the importance of physical aggression in 
adulthood. So what we see in cultures where there's a lot of uh, male on male aggression and violence and so forth, um, parents might often encourage rough and tumble play among boys and encourage them to get more aggressive with one another or even have ritualized play that involves mm -hmm. aggression. In societies where um, men don't, most men don't compete that way, um, parents, especially moms, will try to keep it in check so that it doesn't kind of, in, in that case, the sex difference gets smaller. In the other cases where things are more aggressive for males, the sex difference gets bigger. And it's a combination of evolutionary uh -huh. history, proximate biological, hormonal influences, and socialization. Mm -hmm. So in that line of research, when parents are either encouraging or discouraging certain norms, do you think that has more to do with parents are encouraging the specific child's maybe temperament? So if you have a more aggressive child, whether that's male or female, you might be encouraging that type of play. And then it just so happens that maybe more of the males are aggressive. Or do you think it's the other way around where the parents are mapping the sort of male-female schema onto the child? Yeah, I, you broke up a little bit, so I'm not sure I got, got everything there. But as I understand, the, the question is whether the sex differences in early play, including rough and tumble and other types of things, are parents imposing kind of their stereotypical beliefs on kids and socializing boys to do this and boys to do that, um, which is kind of the default belief among many people. I think actually that kids are creating their own environments, that they're mm -hmm. seeking out environments, they're picking the toys they like to play with, they're engaging in the type of you know, gross motor activities or fine motor or whatever they're doing. I think a lot of it is child-driven. And uh -huh. parents are kind of moving it around a little bit one way or the other, but but they're not creating a lot of these differences as they as many of them believe. Mm -hmm. So then, with the child-centered differences, you might have some some girls that are more aggressive than boys, or more interested in stereotypically boy behaviors than girls. But then, or and then the reverse for boys. But then, mm -hmm. on average, you might still see these general patterns. Right. Yeah. These are, are, are all general patterns. There, there, there are kids who um, engage in um, kind of cross, what we call cross-sex play. So boys, uh, girls who like rough and tumble play or like um, boy typical play and vice versa. Um, you get more of the crossover behaviors with girls than with boys, but you do see it with both of them. Mm -hmm. So what, what did some of your early research look like when you were studying that? First, were you, were you focusing on children or were you looking at adults or both? Yeah, we've, we've looked at a, a number of things. Most of our work has been um, with adults. You know, we've done things, uh, made choices, types of things, some more hormonal influences and in, in competition, so forth. A lot of my work has been um, kind of integrative and the theoretical kind of psychologists have been studying children and sex differences for more than 100 years. So there's a huge amount of literature out there. We actually know quite a bit about uh, boy typical behaviors, achievement patterns and so forth. And same for girls. We also know a lot about where they you know, overlap. 
a lot. So what I spent a lot of time doing was um, trying to organize all of these literatures and understand them from an evolutionary perspective, integrate them in with um, the evolutionary biological literature, the, the primatological literature and other types of things. So, so putting a big puzzle together. So does that mean the default assumption would kind of be um, assume assume males and females are, are similar and that unless we have a specific evolutionary hypothesis for why they might differ. So you're looking for evidence for where there are sex differences in, in say other animals. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, natural selection is typically going to make males and females pretty similar things that keep you alive away from predators, let you find food and, and so forth. Um, but the, there are certain things that will lead to differences. Um, competition among mem members of the same sex, intrasexual competition, and um, the traits that influence uh, make choices, whether it's female choice or um, male choice. And, and, and there, there, there's a huge literature going back um, about 150 years or so on things like Male, uh, male, male competition, female mm -hmm. choice, and, and now more on um, the obverse of that, male choice and female, female competition. So there's, there's a huge li uh, literature there that really provides a bedrock for understanding um, human sex differences. So as I mentioned before, mm -hmm. intense male, male competition among primates is associated with polygony. So Higher status males have more than one mate. It's associated with high levels of male on male aggression um, mm -hmm. and sometimes homicide. Um, and it's related, uh, associated with bigger males than females. Mm -hmm. uh, more, more monogamous species, aggression levels are lower. Males and females are about the same size. Mm -hmm. Developmental patterns are very similar and so forth. So we can look at contemporary humans and say, well, you know, males are five inches taller on average than females all over the world. Mm -hmm. Upper strength is extremely dimorphic. And it's very, it's a huge difference between males um, and females. And then we can look at um, <clears throat> uh, marriage patterns in, in traditional societies where 85% of them allow um, high status males to have several which is polygamy, mm -hmm. other things. You can look at population genetics, reproductive skew. There's a lot of evidence that supports um, that in the, in the evolutionary biological literature, in the anthropological literature, and in the genetic patterns that we see. And mm -hmm. then we can use that and say, well, this is what we would then expect in people. Um, mm -hmm. We'd expect males to develop more slowly, to engage in more rough and tumble play, to be more aggressive mm -hmm. um, when they hit the teen years and early adult years, most of the aggression directed toward other males um, and, mm -hmm. and so forth. It, it just follows from the general uh, literature in biology. Mm -hmm. So most of these sex differences have little to do with survival <laughs> and a lot to do with sexual selection and competition. Right. Yeah, yeah, it, a few of them might have, have to do with survival, with specializations for hunting versus gathering. But I think a lot of it has to do with um, mating comp 
competition and made choices. Uh-huh. So some of them, like the bigger size and like men being more aggressive seem obvious. You also mentioned that males are slower to develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that that's a common pattern in mammals with intense male-male competition where males who are bigger, stronger, and more aggressive have advantages over other males. And so in elephant seals, for example, and mandrels, primates, chimps, and so forth. Um, And the slower development allows them to get bigger. I mean, to get big and develop muscles and stuff, you you know, you you need a little bit more time. Um, It also provides an opportunity to practice um, Mm -hmm. competitive behaviors you know, fighting behaviors or their social species, you know, strategic sorts of things. So the more intense the competition, um, often the longer the preparation period. Uh That's pretty interesting because I would think that the male that could like hit puberty the fastest would be the biggest and be able to outcompete the smaller ones. Right. But, um, but, but they're, they're growing up in a context where it's not just you know, starting from zero, there's nobody there, everybody's same age, and you got 20 males growing, and it's a race there. They're all developing a context where there already are a number of older males and, you know, young adult males and, and so forth. And mm-hmm. so they, they're they growing up and getting into that. Um, you know, they, they have to prepare for that context. Uh-huh. And, and if, if, if you grow too fast, you tend to be small. And if you kind of drag it out a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So compared to some animals, uh, human, animals which are perfectly monogamous, humans are more sexually dimorphic. But then also compared to other animals, there's like even bigger sex differences. So so humans fit somewhere in the middle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There are um, some species, uh, mandrels. You know, they have the colorful snout and stuff where males are about four times bigger than females. It's a huge dimorphism. Wow. And the, um, you know, one, one or two males just dominate uh, re- reproductive access in their troops and mm-hmm. two out of three males never reproduce. So there's a huge variation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in other species, they're monogamous and most males and females reproduce. And, and, and we're kind of in between, not, not extreme, but not zero either. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I, w- I would, in general, consider humans pretty, to be a pretty pair bonding species. I mean, I, and I'm wondering how much of that has to do with maybe a biological motive and how much of it is more like uh, socially enforced, because you have things like marriage and stuff right. that sort of encourage people right. to, to pair bond. Right. Um, it's both, I think. Uh, in um, Western cultures, there's kind of a, a kind of a historical, uh, you know, cultural evolution of the um, social imposition of monogamy. So high status males were kind of their ability to have, have mistresses and stuff was suppressed and that kind of, you know, there, there was a, a long period in Western Europe where kind of socially imposed monogamy uh, developed where basically you, know, you get one wife or one husband at a time. 
Um, the, the, the pair bonding is certainly part of that, that people do develop um, intense and long-term relationships with their partners. Now, that's typically, and we think of it in terms of monogamy, um, but it, it need not be uh, solely in terms of monogamy. So um, a colleague and I argued probably about 20 years ago that our ancestors, if we go back about 4 million years or so, might've been more like gorillas than chimpanzees. And gorillas are interesting because they live in um, family groups. So it might be one male, maybe two males, you know, three or four or five females and their offspring. And they kind of have a large family unit. The males and females, once the female makes her choice, it's like, this is the guy I like, she tends to stick with them and they have um, a long-term relationship. So she could stick with him for the rest of his life. Um, you know, and, and that's a pair bonding sort of thing, at least behaviorally, it looks like it. But he, he may have several of those where he's pair bonded, um, you know, three or four females, not, not just one. So I, I, I think pair, pair bonding can work across multiple relationships. It's more difficult, you know, for people to maintain and um, achieve, but I, I think a pair bonding mechanism doesn't necessarily preclude non-monogamous relationships. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in the polygamous uh, species, or, or even in humans to some extent, the high status males tend to be the ones that get more mates. But the flip side to that is that that also means there's there's not enough females to go around. So so lower status males, whatever that might mean, might not reproduce at all. That's right. Yeah, and and not enough females to go around is typically associated with um, increased male male competition. So the males become um, more competitive with, with one another. Uh, aggression, violence rates go up. Some evidence that. Um, mm -hmm crime rates go up in those areas where there's too many males. Uh -huh. So you could imagine two ways of fixing that problem. One way would be the, the aggression and competition goes up in order for, for people to fight for their mates, I guess. And then the other would be the exact opposite mm -hmm. where people start pairing up more. So the competition goes down. So what, what decides whether a species goes in one direction or the other? Yeah. So um, one way to, to reduce the, the male on male aggression and to um, <clears throat> kind of increase men's cooperation with one another is, is to socially impose monogamy where there's uh, one girl for every guy and one guy for every girl. So you have that and when everybody pairs up, um, there's still competition there because you might prefer one mate over another, but you have to compete to win her over, win him over, whatever. So there's still some competition there, but the extent of competition is muted and the um, extent of cooperation among uh, men is, is increased uh, among women as well, I imagine. And is this competition and cooperation limited to, to like the domain of sex or does it start to spill over into all other areas? Well, I, I, I think it can spill over in, into all other areas, in, into economic areas, economic differentiation, um, 
you know, so one person becomes the baker, the other does something else and, and so forth. And that really contributes to economic activity, exploration, um, you know, imperialistic behaviors and so forth require lots of cooperation, so forth. So it's, it, it can in cooperation across a variety of different areas. Right, because you could you could imagine caricatures of a hardcore Darwinian on one end, where it's like the only motivations that really exist are survival and reproduction. So even if you're trying to like get good grades or make money or something like that, you're really doing it to to improve your fitness. And then on the other end, you might well ignore that completely. Uh, but but the the hardcore Darwinian example I just posed seems a bit too extreme. So how do you, how do you choose the line between where, where you start to look at something in the, through the lens of evolutionary psychology versus like um, giving, making it its own thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, in theory, you know, getting good grades, uh, making money and so forth is a competition. Um, because you're competing for jobs, you go to college and you get educated and that gives you um, access to higher paying jobs, which increases your status and that increases your attractiveness. Um, you know, if you're a guy, increases your, your attractiveness uh, to women. So there, there is a competition there. Um, but it's certainly not the case that the goal is to have as many kids as possible. Um, you know, some guys might have that. Some girls might have that as well. Um, but people also invest in the um, competitiveness of their kids and in, you know, to help them become more competitive when they're um, adults, you know, so they do tutoring, they do other types of things. So that they have fewer kids, especially when mortality risks are, are, are pretty low. Um, we're also in a time where, you know, things uh, in this country and a lot of highly developed countries are, um, people are pretty well off overall and um, have a lot of leisure time and can do a lot of things that really aren't possible in contexts where the straight Darwinian fitness type of thing would really be critically important still important now because you know if you just hang out play video games and never get dates or anything you know obviously that has a evolutionary you become an evolutionary dead end at least for for your own um, genes um, but now you know people have the opportunity to expand into other things get into music art um, you know whatever it is they're interested in that you know may affect their status, but may not. Maybe maybe it's just something they enjoy because it kind of fits in with their personality or interests or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this brings up a much broader question of why we are motivated to do things that either don't have any obvious fitness benefits or that might, in some cases, might even be counterproductive. So, for example, if you're willing to to spend your time and money on, I don't know, creating like an art project when you could be doing something to get food or do something that like 
you don't want to be the starving artist if you're if you're in like a hunter gatherer tribe. Right. Yeah. I mean, you you wouldn't have the um, uh, excess resources necessary to be a starving artist and a hunter gatherer sort of thing. Arts tend to flourish in contexts where there's kind of a lot of wealth and wealthy people or society in general can invest mm -hmm. in it and, and so forth. Um, but sort of certainly a lot of well-known artists now went through periods where they struggled. They didn't mm -hmm. have a lot of resources or fame or status or whatever, but I bet mm -hmm. the majority of them were fantasizing about increases in status and mm -hmm. doing something great, better than other artists Mm -hmm. um, or other musicians and forth. And that's state striving. It, it just, mm -hmm. it's not the type of state, state of striving you could see in a traditional context because those kind of avenues of competition aren't there. But mm -hmm. in a big, wealthy, diversified economy, um, there's all sorts of ways to, there's also sorts of niches to mm -hmm. um, become successful. In. Right. So I can think of two um possible explanations they're probably not mutually exclusive one might be as you just mm -hmm. suggested once you become wealthier and don't have to focus so much on survival needs you kind of have the freedom to expand into other areas and then another thing might be especially like a creative endeavor it's sort of more of a high risk high reward strategy in the sense that you could yeah. become very famous and very successful or like most people probably wouldn't if they're pursuing art or music or something like that Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's that's exactly right. High risk, high reward sort of thing. You, you see that with professional athletes as well. You know, number of high school, college players that actually make it into the big time pros where they're making huge amounts of money and are famous and so forth is pretty small. But the rewards are high enough to attract enough people to compete for those that small number of, of spots. Yeah. So the, the, what, what we've been talking about so far seems to apply mostly to adults, but you mentioned that you've done some research um, on either, mm -hmm. either sex differences or maybe just more evolutionary psychology more generally applied to children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, a, a lot of it's uh, theoretical. I, I think, you know, you see some of the same types of things in kids where they're doing the type of things they need to do during development that would prepare them for adulthood in a traditional context. So they're developing friendships, they're learning to compete, they're learning about their own uh, personalities, likes and dislikes and so forth. The more you know about yourself, the more you can kind of figure out how to influence other people or not be influenced by them in, in unproductive uh, ways. So if we could go back to rough and tumble play, um, you know, we see more of that in boys than girls. You get the physical aggression component of it, but you're also learning whether you're stronger or weaker than specific other boys. And you're also learning specific um, ways to compete. Uh, and boys also kind of congregate together into bigger groups and organize themselves into um, pretty cohesive and competitive groups. Uh, and they do this without, you know, whether or not adults are around to make them play soccer together, 
basketball or football or whatever, whatever they're going to play. And we see that about three times more frequently in boys than in girls. And then if we look at um, competition, uh, adult lives in traditional societies, there's a lot of male cooperative behavior in large groups, um, often for warfare between villages, um, sometimes for hunting as well. And so what kids are kind of naturally organizing for themselves is preparing them for the life of an adult in a more traditional context. Now, mm -hmm. now that might not help them in the modern world because they need to read and write and do, you know, know a little bit of math and other, other types of, of things, um, which mm -hmm. is why they, they like school less than they like playing. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they do what they do do make, makes sense. Uh -huh. So there's aggression in the literal rough and tumble sense. And it seems clear that boys are more aggressive in that sense. And then there's aggression mm -hmm. sort of in the more competitive, like psychological way. So is, is it the case that boys are just more aggressive and competitive overall? Or is it more like maybe both sexes are competitive and girls tend to channel it not through physical aggression, but in other ways? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think girls and women are competitive and they're, they're clearly competitive. And if we look at other primates, um, uh, female on female aggression is just as common overall as male on male aggression. They harass each other and do all sorts of, you know, slap and so forth. Um, it's just not as intense. I mean, it doesn't wind up with um, life-threatening wounds or mortality, whatever. So in, in people, that's called relational aggression where you're trying to undermine the psychological functioning and the social networks of your competitors. So there's this, you know, girl is in your same grade, you know, say think middle high school and you both like the same boy. Um, you know, one girl, the more aggressive girl might spread rumors about, you know, this girl is not very um, loyal to her boyfriends. She'll cheat on them and so forth or say, you know, or she might learn secrets about this other girl that are embarrassing and she'll tell everybody about it. That kind of isolates her from the group and makes her more anxious and depressed and so forth. So, so this uh, relational aggression is very common among uh, adolescent girls and women who are competing with one another. Lots of descriptions of it in the um, ethnographic record of women who have the same husband, so co-wives, it's really common. Um, there. In terms of sex differences, um, it's at least equal, and maybe girls and women do a bit more than men do, but, but mm -hmm. both sexes do it. It, it just, women, it takes much more for women to escalate to physical fight, although mm -hmm. it does happen. And when there is a, a physical fight, the injuries aren't as severe. Uh -huh. So the actual aggressive or competitive impulse is kind of the same, but then the, the way people channel that can be different. Yeah, yeah. So, so girls and women are interested in status, some more than others. But I, I think the uh, status motivations are, are tense than females, because the consequences of status, achieving status from an evolutionary perspective, have been stronger for males than females in people and, and in fact, in most other species. And what about cooperation? Are the sexes, do, do they 
tend to have similar um, similar patterns of cooperation. With one another or within the same sex? I think both would be fun to talk about. Okay, so um, yeah, both, um, you know, boys and men cooperate with other boys and men and girls and women cooperate with other girls and women, um, but the patterns are different. Um, boys and men are more likely to develop larger groups, say five guys or six guys. Um, they engage in common activities together and engaging in these common activities, often competing with other groups. It could be building something or whatever it is, or watching a football game on TV. Um, engaging in these common activities, particularly if they're successful, kind of binds the guys together. And all of the guys in the group tend to like one another. So they're all integrated together. If they're competing with other with other groups, you'll often have role differentiation. You'll have somebody who kind of leads things and other people who take on other roles. They tend, tend to be very helpful and cooperative with one another in those contexts. Um, girls and women's cooperative behavior with one another tends to be more dyadic, more about um, uh, getting social feedback, and uh, kind of dealing with anxiety, stressors, or whatever. So they, they, tell, they share more about their feelings, talk more about their feelings, rehash sort of things with one another. It, it's a way to kind of cope with anxiety and stressors um, with a best friend. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're both show cooperative, but, but it's different, different friendship patterns. Mm -hmm. um, cooperation between men and women is, um, you know, it, it's often fraught, especially early on, because the boys have a way of interacting with other boys and being friends and, you know, how it works um, with other boys. And then girls have their own with other girls and the styles are different and they come together and there's a lot of miscommunications and kind of uh, hurt feeling or other types of things. It's not that the guys are trying to be rude or the girls are trying to be intrusive. It's just that's how they interact with their, their friends, their same-sex friends. Um, most people eventually kind of work it out. Now, male and female levels of cooperative stay between spouses um, can vary across cultures in you know upper middle class uh, western cultures uh, husbands and wives tend to be very cooperative and are more dependent on one another than they are in other contexts where they would probably live closer so you you know get to go to school somewhere or get a job somewhere you're likely to move away from your your kin base supports system of the wife or husband or whatever becomes more central to your support than in other contexts. Um, you, see, you see that in some other contexts where the, the husbands and wives are very cooperative with one another. Uh, it can be other contexts where the husbands and wives actually have a very distant relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. It could be because um, he has multiple wives and there are social rules that he has to treat them all the same and spend only so much time with each of them and so forth. So it's a more distant relationship. Could mm -hmm. also be that she comes from a village or tribe or whatever that her husband's group is actually in a conflict with right now. So then she has split loyalties. And so there's, there, there's mm -hmm. a full range of um, cooperation versus kind of 
emotional distance between husbands and wives within cultures as well as across cultures. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So going back to the differences in cross-sex friendships, do you think that Mm -hmm. has more to do with sex itself or is it more a marker for behavioral patterns? So for example, maybe a a more masculine woman or a more feminine man would, would get along better with the opposite sex or is it independent of personality? Yeah, I, I don't think it's it's independent of, of personality. So yeah, I, I would guess that um, a girl who liked male activities, you know, mm-hmm. playing catch or whatever it is that um, they're interested in, would have an easier time fitting in with with guys because that's how guys develop relationships with one another by engaging in those same types of activities. The more feminine guy might be more open to uh, themselves or um, experiences, feelings, background, so forth, um, mm-hmm. which is le- le- less typical among guys. So yeah, I, I, I can see where the, um, you know, the, the cross-sex behavior could, could influence kind of mm-hmm. ease of fitting in with the opposite right. sex. So part of the controversy uh, surrounding evolutionary psychology, and especially in sex differences, seems to be that well, if, if you're not careful with your words, it could be trying to box people into certain to certain groups or assuming that people will behave certain ways. But but obviously there's tremendous individual differences um, mm-hmm. in behaviors between sexes and, and people more generally. So what does the evolutionary approach have, have to say about that? I assume it has something to do with like there's naturally going to be variability in your genes, mm-hmm. but it would it would be nice to expand upon that. Yeah. So when I think about, about sex differences, I always think in terms of distributions rather than kind of silos So there, and, and the extent of overlap. Mm-hmm. And so there are some things where, you know, girls and women are a little bit better, where maybe 60% of girls are better than the average guy. So it's enough mm-hmm. to kind of know that girls are a little bit better on average than this. Um, and there's other things like... Um, upper body strength, velocity, and so forth, where there's very little overlap between males and females, where the, in this case, the, the, the poorest male is better than, you know, almost all other females. And so there, mm-hmm. there, there's a whole range of things. Most psychological traits individually, the differences aren't that big on mm-hmm. average. That's if you t- take individual traits. So if you look at something like um, make choices, kind of what do you want in a mate? And you have a bunch of adjectives say, well, you want a kind mate, um, for example. Um, and so the, the sex difference there, you know, girl, uh, women are kind of would rate that a little bit as more important than guys. And the difference would be fairly small. But of course, when, when you make complex choices in life, it is a combination of things that influences the outcome. So if you're looking for a husband or a wife or whatever, you know, it's not just kind, it's kind in combination with five or six or however many other traits that are there. And so the sex differences on each of those individual traits might be fairly small. But if you combine them together and say, okay, the whole package of what women want, the whole package of what men want, um, the the differences become much larger. And so, 
you have to use a, a more, you know, a more multivariate way of looking at things rather than looking at individual traits. And the same is true for um, cognitive and social skills. So if you look at something like um, reading facial expressions and making a correct inference about the emotion that that person is feeling, uh, girls and women are a little bit better than guys and men. It's a small to moderate difference. But when you're talking to somebody and engaging uh, in an interaction with something, somebody, you're not only reading facial expressions, you're reading um, you know, vocal intonation, what they're saying, body posture, and so forth. You're reading all of these cues simultaneously. And if you put them all together, then the sex difference in this, I guess you call it emotional intelligence, becomes actually quite, quite large over standard deviation. Mm -hmm. So would it be right to, to conceptualize larger amounts of overlap or smaller amounts of overlap with larger selection pressures and then larger amounts of overlap with like, I guess it, there's, it, there's not as much selection pressure for, for differences between the sexes? Yeah, I, I that that's how, how I think of it. The the more intense the selection pressure for whatever it is, um, the larger the differences between the sexes. So mm -hmm. if you get um, mandrels that I mentioned before, where males are four times heavier than females, huge difference, almost no overlap. So the smallest male is still much bigger than the largest female. So the, there's no overlap there. You know, in adulthood. Um, and then we look at actual reproductive patterns and there's intense competition among the males where only a few males actually are reproducing uh, are siring most of the offspring. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at situations, as I mentioned, where most of the males get a mate, may not be their first choice, but they get a mate and most reproduce and so forth. You tend, not, you tend to have small sex differences in, mm -hmm. in physical size in this case. Is there something about the physical traits, like let's say height or upper body strength, that's more heritable than personality traits? And, and when I say that, I mean, not only more heritable in the sense that like there might be a larger selection pressure for it, but like something, because you could think that there could be much larger sex differences in aggression, even though we mentioned we see some, if they're, they're not nearly as pronounced as these physical differences we talked about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so a, a couple of things going on there. Um, you do get pretty big sex differences in some forms of aggression. So homicide rates, about 30 to 40 to one, male on male killings versus female on female killings, huge gap there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in modern societies, a lot of that is suppressed by policing and stuff. And so you, you don't mm -hmm. see it. If you go to traditional societies, it's much more common on a per capita basis. And the sex mm -hmm. differences in a lethal aggression are, are, are huge. And so, yeah, there, there, there you have quite a, quite a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, something like height, height is going to be, it's fair. Um, and so, if you grow up in a context where you're sick a lot, um, poor, poorly nourished, not enough calories and so forth, you're not gonna reach your genetic potential in terms of height. And so there'll be a big 
call or influences height and less of a heritable influence. When you get the context where, you know, everybody has good enough nutrition, good enough healthcare, you know, you, you get inoculated so you don't get these, uh, you know, bad illnesses and, and so forth that could dis disrupt your growth. Um, most of the variation in height will be heritable. So yeah, you can't, I mean, you, you can't really say that, well, it's more heritable. So there's more of a selection pressure to it be, because um, the degree of heritability will depend on context, current context and developmental context. Mm -hmm. So there are some contexts where socialization will inhibit these, these um, biological sex differences like aggression, like you mentioned. And then there are others where the, the biological differences become even, uh, even more pronounced when, when right. societies is, are, are wealthier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've written about that. I have a, an article on that. I actually wrote a book on it where evolved biologically based sex differences, the magnitude of them actually fluctuates across contexts. And we expect those, those differences to be biggest in the healthiest, wealthiest, most kind of um, pampered societies. So if we look at height, um, males are taller than females all over the world, but the magnitude of that sex difference uh, varies. It's smallest in contexts where there's um, you know, poor, poor nutrition, you know, not enough calories during, during growth and, and so forth, because those deficits are affecting boys growth more than girls growth. And they're biggest in, um, in modern societies. So we, we even see that um, historically. So in Britain in um, 1900, so about a hundred years ago or so, Males were, let's say, I, I had to translate the, the centimeter things were maybe three inches taller than females on average. And that gap increased um, quite a bit, almost doubled over the course of about 100 years or so. And that is because, you know, healthcare, public health, sanitation, um, nutrition, you know, everything improved for people. And so we saw more gains in male height than female height. And, and that's true for a lot of sex differences. They're, they're actually bigger in more egalitarian, wealthier contexts. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any other ex examples of that? So, so we talked about physical characteristics, but in terms of psychological mm -hmm. characteristics? Yeah, so um, uh, personality differences tend to be bigger in um, uh, uh, you know, modern, wealthy, context. We've, we've done some studies and, and I've done some reviews looking at if you have um, uh, stressors that has sex specific effects. So uh, for example, men usually do better on spatial cognition measures related to navigation, but also related to generating images and manipulating those images and so forth. So typically have a male advantage there. Females usually do better on social information processing. So processing facial cues, facial information. And I've argued that um, if 
the sex that has the advantage for say trait A, spatial abilities in this case, that sex will also be the most vulnerable to um, environmental disruptions. So getting sick, exposed to toxins, uh, chronic stressors, and so forth. So we would expect under good conditions, the differences to be big. As you add stressors in, this trait, spatial abilities in this case, um, will be more strongly affected in males than females. So it might cut it in half for males or cut the, the gap in half. As males are more strongly affected than, than females in this case for this trait. And that's based on some pretty well-established biological theories. But in, in any case, we did a study where we assessed uh, know, about 400 or so undergraduates on spatial abilities and face processing. And we looked at sex differences in college students who didn't drink and then college students who drank way too much. So they were binge drinking, having five or 10 drinks um, per episode in a 30 day period. So, which is toxic we, from studies. Um, and, and what we found was that uh, for non-drinkers, the guys are better at the spatial tasks and the girls are better at the face processing task. Okay, standard sex difference. But for the binge drinkers where you have this toxin exposure, the, um, uh, the sex difference for facial processing disappeared because the women binge drinkers were pretty severely affected. And the sex difference for one of the spatial tasks got smaller and actually reversed for the other task. So we, we see reductions in sex specific advantages with toxin exposure. So here we have, I, I would argue evolved sex differences, but the magnitude of those can vary depending on how healthy and stressed the population is. Wow, so that kind of runs contrary to the, to the idea that the more egalitarian a society gets, the more you kind of become equal. Right, that, that, that was the, the argument by feminist activists for decades, that once we have equality of the law, opportunity and so forth, which I to totally agree with them, men and women should have equal opportunities, that all of these sex differences would converge together and men and women would be psychologically and behaviorally indistinguishable. The only difference would be the obvious physical differences. Um, but that, that hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. um, the differences in many areas have actually become larger. Do you know of any examples where it has converged, like any specific traits or areas that, that were more social? Yeah. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good, good question. So um, a colleague of mine have done some work on um, occupational interests and choices uh, as related to academic abilities and other things, but also across nations where we can look at how egalitarian and wealthy and so forth the country is. And the um, sex differences, say interest in engineering, computer science and so forth gets bigger as the country becomes more egalitarian. So that created a lot of stir, but in any mm -hmm. case, um, yeah, we did a follow-up study looking at occupational 
interests of adolescents, uh, about 470,000 adolescents across 80 countries mm-hmm. or so. so. So we could look at kind of wow. cultural variation in that. And we also looked at the historical data. So there, there's data on these aspirations going back um, more, more than 100 years. So we can look at historical change as well as historical continuity and sex differences and then cross mm-hmm. uh, national differences. So there, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of interests, you know, women more interested in people helping professions like teaching um, than men. That's true across t- historical time within uh, Western culture and as well as across across um, countries these days. Um, but there, there's also been changes. So in the U.S., um, 100 years adolescent girls were interested in biology but if they're interested in biology they typically went into nursing there weren't many female physicians and and that was because of um you know cultural expectations um limitation on their opportunities to go into medicine Uh, but now fast forward 100 years we still get the sex difference in interest in um helping and working with living things but now women can go into becoming a physician, a veterinarian, and so forth. So their occupational um, horizons and opportunities have broadened. Uh, and so they're not just going into nursing, but now they spread into, as I said, medicine and veterinary medicine. They haven't switched to, to an interest in engineering, um, which mm-hmm. you know, we had 100 years ago, or computer science more recently. But we do see see these changes. They're going into more um, higher status white collar occupations, but still mm-hmm. within the same narrower um, interest. Uh-huh. So the interests themselves are are at least a little bit more biologically determined. But then taking a subset of people with the same interests over time, the the opportunities for both sexes have have become more equal. Right. Yeah. The opportunities for most sexes have, have become more equal. And so now mm-hmm. in some areas, we see as many women physicians in med school as men, um, but we still don't see as many women going into engineering as mm-hmm. men because they're gotcha. just, they're, they're not reporting an interest in it. Okay. Yeah. So I want to close asking you about your current and future research directions. Uh, are there any unanswered yeah. questions that you hope to see? Mm-hmm to see solved in the next couple decades, maybe? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always unanswered questions. Um, there, there's in, in writing this um, third edition of Male, Female, there, there, there's some pretty interesting advances over the last 10 years or so. Um, 10 years ago, we knew very little about what's called mini puberty. So there is, um, uh, at birth, um, sex hormones, uh, male hormones and female hormones in infants or newborns are kind of zero, but then they kind of ramp up for about six months or so. And mm-hmm. you see, see this in, in, in some other primates too, but we didn't know much about what it was doing. 
Mm-hmm. And so, so now we know that, you know, this mini puberty early on in life um, is actually influencing interests some behavior patterns and so forth. The, the prenatal stuff is doing it, but now we're getting more into the, you know, this area that, that we didn't know much about. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> there's been a lot of improvement in population genetic studies where you can trace uh, males ancestries and female ancestries, and you can make inferences about um, the number of male and female ancestors we had at different, you know, going back, you know, a few hundred years, the thousands of years. And that really is uh, pretty, pretty interesting, pretty exciting, Mm -hmm. gives us insights that we didn't have before. Um, Brain imaging studies are still, still kind of in, in the, the newish, um, phase of their development, but are beginning to, to show some interesting uh, similarities as well as, as um, differences. I think there's going to be a lot of advances in that in the mm-hmm. next um, uh, decade or two. So there, there, I think there's major changes in our understanding of male females, but there will be greater and greater specificity in what we learn. So we know that, mm-hmm. you know, hormones, prenatal hormones during the first few months do this hormone exposure, you know, during the first few months after birth versus the first few months prenatally do something else. So we'll, we'll know a lot more of the details, I think. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. I look forward to, to mm-hmm. learning more about this. Dr. Gary, thank yeah. you so much for your time. You're welcome.